Y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. If I met you at some point, I would love to meet you and uh, get to hang out with you. Um, if you are free at all the next couple of weeks, I am more relaxed because most people are in test. <laughs> so, <laughs> they mean to have that come off the way it did, but... <laughs> But it, seriously, if you want to hang out in the next couple of weeks before the semester is over, I would love to hang out with you and catch up and hear how things are going. Um, also, tonight before we really get started, I wanted to, to say, uh, to invite you to pray for a man named Andrew Brunson, I think is his name. Uh, he's uh, used to live here in Chapel Hill. His daughter's a UNC grad. He's been a missionary in Turkey for the last few years, and he uh, was recently imprisoned uh, by the Turkish government for... Uh, Islamic affiliation um, or terrorist affiliation or something along those lines. But basically, he's a Christian missionary in Turkey. And he uh, goes on trial next week um, with the possibility of 35 years in jail. And so I want to invite you to pray for him and to pray that uh, you know justice would be done in this, that he would be released, um, that God would be glorified in these things, and that um, most of all, um, that Jesus... And the gospel would continue to go forth. I mean, I think this is a, a very, very actual thing to pray for, especially considering that we've been looking through the book of Acts for the last uh, few weeks. So I just want to invite you to pray for that. I know the Bible Church uh, is doing a week-long prayer for Andrew. Um, you can tag on to that if you want. And if some of you will go to the Bible Church, you can get some details from folks about that as well. And we'll post something about it on the app soon as well. Um, but moving in back into Acts uh, we've been in the book of Acts for the last couple of weeks. Tonight, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and the Philippian jailer, which is a fairly uh, famous passage from this book, though you don't have to know anything about it to understand what we're doing tonight. And uh, a little context as we come into this story. Paul and his friend Silas were doing missionary stuff in Philippi. They caused a ruckus. People got mad about it. They were beaten up, and they were thrown into jail <laughs> That's where the scene starts here. So, this is Acts chapter 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would help us to believe, um, help us in our unbelief, help us as we approach you and approach one another uh, with our doubts, um, with our fears, with our hurts. Lord, in the confidence of faith and also the weakness of faith. Um, confidence in you and in your power and your love and your kindness towards people who are weak and weakness in ourselves as we see honestly what's inside of us and how weak we feel so often. Lord, let us look to you and hope in you for everything tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. So I was watching the Colbert show not too long ago, and he was interviewing 
Jordan Peele, who's the writer-director of the hit Get Out, and he's talking to Jordan, and he's asking, you know, hey, what's some fun stuff that's happened to you since this movie went big? And Jordan thought for a moment, and he said, well, this teacher at UCLA invited me to sit in on a uh, black horror film studies class. And so he goes to the class, and he, he gets there a little bit late, He's got kind of a gray hoodie. He sits in the back. The lights are low because they're watching Get Out on uh, up front. And she's like playing the movie, stopping it, asking questions like, what do you think the director meant when this happened? Or what do you think this scene is about over here? And students are kind of raising their hands and talking about it and you know, throwing their fan theories out. And she asks you know, another question about what do you think the director meant when this happens? And Jordan just kind of raises his hand in the back and says, I actually have an opinion on that. And everyone kind of turns around and kind of realizes, oh, someone's been sitting back here this whole time. And he like flips the hood back. And people are like, what? It's Jordan Peele. <laughs> and they like lose their mind. And people come up to him and are like peppering him with questions. And do you, this is what you meant when you did this? Or is this what this scene is about? Or, you know, I've got this theory that these things and these things are connected. And this movie is really about your movie. And he's like, no, no, that's not real. Uh, <laughs> But it was, it was this amazing moment where the person who actually made the story that these people love steps into the room and tells them what the movie's actually about. And I hear that story and I thought, man, wouldn't it be amazing if that were to happen to our lives? Like that you could ask God and say, like, why did you allow this to happen to me? Like, why is this thing part of the world? Why is this a part of my life? How am I here at UNC when so many other people who are just as smart and just as competent didn't make it? Why me? What, like, what's this scene about? What's my life about? Wouldn't it be great if that could happen? The Bible says that something like that has happened in the life of Jesus. That in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the whole meaning of the world has been revealed. Not all the specifics about your life, but generally what the world is about what history is about. And that meaning is that God loves the world and he's saving it from evil through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's not a myth. That's not a helpful thing that I kind of add on to kind of smooth over the rough edges in my life. But that's foundational. The writer and the poet Wendell Berry said once, I take literally the statement in John that God loves the world. I believe the world was created and approved by love, that it endures by love, that it can be redeemed only by love. The message of the gospel is that love in the person of Jesus is redeeming the world. And that's what the whole of the world and our history and our life is about. And that's found by faith in Jesus. And as we've studied the book of Acts this semester, we've seen the gospel is going out into the world and it can't be stopped. Actually, the more you try to stop it, the less effect that has and the more it goes out. However, I think that a lot of times our problem comes because we don't really understand what the effects of that gospel of love really do when it gets deep down into us, into our bones, and the way we think and feel about ourselves and the world. It's like, okay, that's good news. That's great. But what do I actually do with that? How do I step into the world now? So tonight I want to look at this story. I want to say that the power of the gospel does three things. It opens up new possibilities. It exposes false ways of living. And it saves the desperate. Opens up new possibilities, exposes false ways of living, and it saves the desperate. 
Okay, first, it opens up new possibilities. Look at the start of the story. Paul and his friend Silas are locked up in jail. They've been beaten. They've been thrown into the stocks. Like these like uh, handcuffs for their feet so they can't get up. And what are they doing? They're having a worship service. They're praying. They're singing. Everyone else's understanding right there of what's possible would be the opposite of that. That this is, it's impossible to have a good time after you've gotten beaten and thrown into prison. But Paul and Silas are saying that because the gospel is true, there's a new way to experience the reality of the world. And so they're worshiping. I mean, think about that. As you come in here night after night, what worship does to you, and the way you think about the world and your life. Like Paul and Silas, gospel-centered worship extends both the heights and the depths of how we understand ourselves. What we thought our problems were, what we think our hopes are. A lot of times when we come in here, you think that your biggest problem is stress, uh, procrastination through Netflix, schoolwork, whether what's looming on the horizon over the summer or next year. But when you come in here and you sing songs about Jesus' death, about victory over sin, about the gospel, it gives you a broader perspective on your life, doesn't it? That yes, stressing over procrastination is still a problem. But if Jesus has conquered my guilt, if Jesus reconciled me to God and to one another, then he can help me deal with this as well. We're shaped by worship to see a larger scale of what's possible. A larger reality than the one that we live in. Like Paul and Silas hurt here too. The gospel also shows us how to deal with our hurts. Because, beloved, the sad reality of life in a fallen world is that no one here doesn't suffer and hurt at times. One theologian said this. He said that God had one child without sin, but he never had a child who didn't suffer. That part of the beauty of the gospel is that God himself enters into our suffering and redeems our life through his suffering. That Paul and Silas here are suffering here for the gospel But they worship while they suffer because they know that the gospel extends the possibilities of how they endure the pain of life. You know, the Christian understanding of pain and suffering is one that never minimizes it. As though this isn't real, this is just an illusion, you need to just kind of pass through this and ignore it. It never does that. But it also never despairs of your suffering and says, oh, this is the biggest thing in the world. You'll never get over this. You'll never heal from this. There'll never be a time when you don't feel this. The gospel says no to that too. Instead, what it says is that God is at work in this. That if God can redeem the death of his son on a cross and use it for the good of the world, then he can redeem your heartbreak too. He can redeem breakups. He can redeem your sickness. He can redeem abuse and depression. The reality of the good news is that it takes us out of ourselves That it broadens our perspective on who we are and what all this other stuff that we say about us, like really how that shapes our reality. It says that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And that what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. So that the cross redeemed Jesus and his life through the resurrection, it'll redeem your suffering too. It's just a whole new way of seeing what's possible in your life in the world. 
Did you know that until 1954, nobody believed that it was possible to run a sub four-minute mile? Like, nobody believed that that was even possible. People do it all the time now. But scientists up until that point had said that this was an absolute human limit. Like, no one could do this. Just simply impossible. That all changed one day, though, when a med school student named Robert Bannister started training for 30 minutes a day, every day, while he's in med school. And he gets to this race, and he's got his two buddies who are pacers for him, guys who are keeping him on pace uh, with the time that he wants to have. And they run with him, and he gets the last 200 yards of the mile, and he does a dead sprint. And he gets in in 359. So it's a world record that everyone had thought was unbreakable. Scientists said this was a human limit. He breaks it. Their minds are blown. But you know what was really crazy about that story? Is that here's this seemingly impossible act. Most people have run in their life. No one up to this point in history had ever run a sub-four-minute mile. But what's so crazy about it is that Robert Bannister does this at the start of May in 1954 in England... By the end of May 1954 in Australia, some other guy had run a sub-minute, four-minute mile. Like, can you believe that? Like, in three weeks, some guy said, oh, I could do that. And he did it. How is that possible? Because he saw that there's a new condition for what's possible in his life. That Robert Bannister opens up the realm of possibility. And people do this all the time now. It's not that big of a deal. Well, it would be for me. <laughs> but what if what you need to see in your life through the gospel is this, there's this new condition of what's possible for how you deal with yourself and your anxieties and the things that hurt you. What if what your non-Christian friends need to see is there's a new condition of what's possible in terms of how people can love one another and how much joy people can have when they do hurt a new condition for what our problems really are and what our hopes really are and where they lie. Can you say at least that if you're a Christian, that's what you need? Two, the gospel exposes our false ways of living in the world. Don't think of this jail that they're in as a jail that like, you would see in a movie or that if you went to maybe downtown Durham or Chapel Hill, like there's a jail here and it just kind of stands by itself. Think of this as... The Philippian jailer has his house, and they've probably got like a couple of rooms, and then there's this bigger, larger room where he's incarcerating people. So like people are basically living with him. It's late at night. He and his family are asleep. Paul and Silas are singing. This earthquake happens. Because, you know, I mean, if Paul's this great of a missionary, he's going to be a killer worship leader, so earthquakes happen. Uh, The doors of the prison swing open. Shackles fall off. The jailer realizes what's happened. And he assumes, like any sane person would, the prisoners have escaped. Knowing how big of a deal this is, he gets ready to kill himself because he knows what the punishment is going to be. And Paul stops him. Do not harm yourself. We are all here. That's not the way we're going to do things here anymore because of the gospel. That even when it costs us to love you, and we have every imaginable right to ditch you, We will not. The jailer's system says that his life is his work. His system says his life is how well other people think that he's doing and how he's perceived by other people. 
That if he fails in those things, in his work, or how people perceive of him, then he's literally dead. The jailer lives by this false system. And yet when Paul stops him from taking his own life, he's doing that something, he's doing that because it's something that the gospel is guiding him into. He's creating a new way of living for this jailer. I'm in some continuing education classes right now, and one of the guys in one of my classes is, he's Indian from the subcontinent of India, and he said, he was tell, I was talking one day in class, and he was saying that in India, there's a lot of resistance to Christians and the gospel because of the systems of life that are already there and that have been there for a long time. And he said that, you know, there's a caste system in India. So there's like, there's people in higher caste that get all the nice jobs and all the good work, and there's people in lower caste, the untouchables, who simply because of the way that they were born and the assumption that, you know, you messed up in a previous life and so now you're in this low caste here, that you need to be here at the bottom, that there's this system that's in place that keeps people on the bottom. And if the gospel comes in, the fear from some of the higher caste is that it'll, it'll make the lower caste leave their bad jobs and try to get jobs as like doctors and lawyers and government officials. And so there's this deep resistance to the gospel because it'll change the false system of living over there. There's another campus minister. He's in a prayer group with me, and he has been kicked out of China like blackballed from China. He can never go back to China again because he was a missionary in China for about 10 years and his job was training pastors of small house churches and he was so good at it that the Chinese got worried that if Christians don't think that we're the ultimate authority and they believe that Jesus is the ultimate authority, that could hurt our system of government and so we need to kick this guy out. And so now he's a campus minister. And he can never go back to China again. Because he was unveiling the false systems of living that are over there. The caste system doesn't like the gospel. Communists don't like the gospel. The Jim Crow South didn't like the gospel. Yet because the gospel says that the ruler of all things is Jesus. And that he is making all things new. And that he is the one that everyone has to answer to. It changes the systems of the world and the way that people live. And this is just deeply countercultural. God's people are always called to be countercultural. Prisoners staying in a jail cell instead of breaking out are countercultural, right? Because the issue of Christian mission is the issue of to whom does the world belong? Is it Caesar or Jesus? Is it money or Jesus? Is it my personal right to pleasure in the way that I want it? Or is it Jesus? God's people are always asking, who is Lord? And answering that question with the testimony of their lives. That is Jesus. And that can just look and feel very countercultural. You know, as a Christian, sometimes we say, you know, I want God to make me kinder. I want God to make me wiser. I want God to make me more missional. And those are all good things. I hope that we all get those things. But do you know that if God does that, then the way he's going to do it is going to make you more like Jesus. Which means he's going to make you more countercultural. Because Jesus is just the most countercultural person ever. He's the son of God. He's all powerful. He's totally in control. He gives up all this power and all this control so that he can serve his enemies. So that he can be thrown in a, pr- a prison cell. So that he can die for his, his people so that they can have a relationship with him even when they're his enemies. And that's what he calls Paul and Silas into. 
And that's why he gives them this countercultural life. And then he calls them to give their life away in this countercultural way. Because if the world is locked in this false way of living, then when real life enters it and starts to shine and starts to set people free, that's going to expose some things, especially false things. And y'all, there are just so many ways that should shake our lives up. But for right now, let us not despise the day of small things. And so let's start in a small way. Think about hospitality. All Christians are called to be hospitable people. When the Philippian jailer is converted and understands the gospel, the first thing he does is invite Paul and Silas into his house, wash their wounds, feed them, and hang out with them. Because he instantly gets hospitality is where we go with this. That hospitality is just a picture of the gospel. To be a guest and to receive. Or to be a host and to give. Like That's a picture of what God does for us. And what we invite other people into. And in a world that just feels very inhospitable and very cold sometimes, like this campus needs that. You all need that. Our campus is divided by all sorts of stuff. People being too busy for other people. People being too different to actually sit down and have a meal because that might be like awkward. Oh, awkward. <laughs> As though that's the worst thing ever. Right? And into that, God calls us into hospitality towards each other towards our non-Christian neighbors? Are we willing to be slightly inconvenienced by inviting other people into our dorm rooms or our apartments or our houses for regular meals so that we can live life with them a little bit and be a little countercultural? I mean, hospitality through the gospel really unmasks the lies of busyness that we tell ourselves or the idea that our differences are just too great for us to ever eat a meal together. As though you're not a person who wants to eat just like I am. But the gospel calls us to rest from our busyness. And it says that actually Jesus is bigger than our perceived differences. It deals with these false systems and has all these effects in our lives that I don't think we'd ever think of. But it just deeply affects us and changes the way that we deal with our lives and with one another. I saw a TED Talk not too long ago, uh, from a guy named George Monbiot. I think I'm saying his name right. And he was really into this idea called rewilding parts of the world, which is basically saying we need to reintroduce apex predators into places that don't have them anymore. Like, let's take wolves and put them back into Yellowstone Park, right? Or, like, let's just pour a bunch of great whites into the San Francisco Bay. I don't know if he said that, but that seems cool to me. Uh, (laughs) That's where I would go with that. (laughs) But he said, okay... People reintroduced wolves back in the Yellowstone National Park in 1995. They hadn't been there in like 70 years. The place was overgrazed by deer. The wolves start to eat the deer. The deer get pushed out and stay out of places like valleys and canyons. And in those places, all these trees and uh, bushes start to grow that hadn't been there, which invite birds, which invite beavers. The beavers gnaw down the trees, build dams, which brings in other animals. Pretty soon, because the rivers have better uh, bushes and trees on the side of them, there's less erosion. Because you introduce wolves back into this place, like it changes everything. It has all these effects that nobody would have thought. I mean, it changed the geography of Yellowstone National Park because there's like these animals that are almost dogs, like roaming around in there, right? And I'm trying so hard right now 
not to say, and the gospel is just like this wolf in your life. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. But what I do want to say is that it, it has all these effects that you would have never anticipated or you would never expect. That the gospel changes your life in ways that you never thought it would. It changes the way you think about money. It changes the way you think about your time, about the people that you're willing or not willing to hang out with. It adds a richness and a depth to your life that had just not ever been there. Because it just changes you. Three, the gospel saves the desperate. The gospel saves the desperate. The jailer is so overcome when he sees Paul and Silas and that they have not escaped and therefore given him his life back that he runs in. And I, I can only assume that he's heard them talking about Jesus because he falls at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? He's a desperate man. Why is that? Because all of his other things have failed. All the systems he's lived in. All the hopes that he'd had that if I can just be the, you know, a perfect jailer, then this will come out okay. The gospel has barged into his life and he's seen all the things that he thought would be his savior fall apart. And in just a few moments, it's been exposed as nothing. And that's our lives too. When we hold on to something to give us life, and it fails, what do we do? When you're in middle school, you think that you'll have life if you just lose the braces and get a best friend. Caroline, can I get, can I get the pick? Yes. Boom. <laughs> that was me, y'all. <laughs> 1996. I really thought at the time, if I just lose the braces, if I lose the clip-on, <laughs> if I get a bestie, my life will turn around. But then that happens. All right, you can go back to the... <laughs> I don't want that to be staring at you the rest of the sermon. <laughs> and then that happens, and you get a dri- and then you long for a driver's license, right? And you say, this will give me life if I just have the freedom to go and do what I want to do. And then that happens. And you say, well, now I need to rock school because what I need to do to have life is to get into a great college. And then you get here. And you're like, well, okay, now I'm walking around with all these beautiful people and I want a real relationship. And maybe you get that. And as you continue to look for these things that would give you life, you just have to ask yourself, where does that stop? Like, would traveling the world and having exotic experiences be enough? Making a lot of money, starting an important business, and finally being a boss. Like, what would be enough to give us life? Do you know what's under all that? Desperation. A desperate need for the next thing to satisfy me. What's the next big fun thing in my life that will bring me peace and make me whole? What's the next big thing this weekend? What's the next big thing this semester? What's the next big thing this summer or after I graduate? Do you know what the gospel does when it enters our lives? It makes us give up on the next big thing. It makes us give up on finally finding that thing that will satisfy us if we just have enough of, you know, whatever it is. What is good about the good news is it approaches us and says, you know, the only qualification you need for life And for Jesus is to be desperate. That he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And do you feel weary and heavy laden? Then you're qualified. That's enough. 
exhaustion in ourselves leads to faith in someone else. Faith is not getting hyped and feeling on top of the world. Faith is feeling so tired with yourself and desperate for someone else that you fall at the feet of Jesus and say, I'm weary. I'm heavy laden. Give me rest. And that is coming to him for the first time. And that is coming to him for the hundred thousandth time. That the qualification that we need for life and life in Jesus is desperation and a deep sense of how much we need Him. That real faith is not believing in the next fun thing or that the ideal you is just around the corner. Real faith is believing in Jesus. That we come to Him and He rescues us from our exhaustion with ourselves. And more than that, from alienation from Him and from one another and the penalty of sin and death, that He has real life in Him. He rescues us, delivers us, and He does that for desperate people. So I want to end with this. I saw a 60 Minutes interview uh, not long ago, and in it, they were interviewing uh, this young woman named Jessica uh, Buchanan. And she'd been this American aid worker, and she'd been in Somalia working with humanitarian relief, and she gets kidnapped by these Somali bandits. And they try to negotiate. Negotiations break down. There's never enough money. These people are not trustworthy because they're bandits. And it comes out that she actually has a life-threatening medical emergency while, while she's being held captive by these people, and they still are not giving her, her up. So they launch a special operations mission to rescue her. 24 Navy SEALs, part of SEAL Team 6, so the best of the best, skydive next to the compound to where she's being held. They cut the power. They break in. They find her room. She wakes up, and it's pitch black, and she just knows she's surrounded by these guys. And she pulls the blanket over her head like, oh, crap. And someone in this American accent says, Jessica Buchanan, we're with the American military, and we're here to take you home. You are safe. I mean, they're saying that on enemy territory, and it doesn't matter because she's safe. They pull the blanket off of her face. They pick her up. She's too weak to actually run on her own. So one guy throws her on his back and just fireman carries her and runs flat out for the next four or five minutes. They start to get her close to the helicopter, and they they hear something in the brush. And so they throw her down, and all these seals just dogpile her to protect her with their bodies. Like, no one is going to touch this woman. Possible threat gets eliminated. They pick her back up. (laughs) Euphemism. (laughs) They pick her back up. They put her on a chopper. They hand her a folded American flag and send her on her way. She never sees their faces. She never hears their names. They get on another chopper and they just go off into the night. She lands in Italy. She meets her husband. They fly to Portland. She reconnects with her family. She went from having no one, from being as good as dead, totally desperate, to having her husband back, returning to her family, being free and safe. When 60 Minutes told the story of Jessica Buchanan, they did not call it the homecoming of Jessica. They did not call it the improvement of Jessica. They called it the rescue of Jessica. When we say that Jesus saves 
we mean that Jesus rescues. Completely, utterly rescues. For people who are desperate and have no ability to rescue themselves. And that's our offer to you. As it is every night in our UF. That Jesus would give you life and rescue him into yourself or into himself. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that you would help us to see our own need of you and need of Jesus. Lord, that we would see how sufficient he is, how good he is, how wise he is, how much he loves people who are desperate. Lord, let us look for faith in him, not by amping it up in ourselves, but by coming to him tired and weary and heavy laden and knowing that he will bear us and our burdens. In your name we pray. Amen. Can we all stand?